Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. You may find that on page 864 from the pew, in the Pew Bible, and I would encourage you to open there and, and leave it open during the exposition. This is God's word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your word desperately. By your Holy Spirit, plant it deep within our hearts, Lord God, and then make it grow. Make it grow to 10, 50, 100 fold. And grant that this word would conform us more and more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let me admit something right up front to you. I'm used to being heard and not seen here at 10th. So it may not surprise you to find out that I don't like icebreakers. You know, those little games to help groups of people to get to know one another? They're not very much fun for those of us who don't want to be known. <laughs> There's a particular icebreaker that used to be popular. Name the three people you would most like to have dinner with, living or dead. 
Now this game always made me a little nervous in Christian contexts. I couldn't help feeling like I was being secretly sized up spiritually based on who I named. For example, if as a musician I named Bach, Mozart, and Vladimir Horowitz, and the next person said, well, I want to have over the Apostle Paul, Elijah, and Abraham, I knew immediately I was in serious trouble. It is fascinating, though, how having a meal together often shapes or reveals the nature of relationships around the table. In fact, meals themselves are often like icebreakers. They help us get to know one another better and develop relationships. In our passage today, in some ways, the ice breaks, but in others, it thickens. This meal was not a private event. Curious people could attend and even converse with those at the table. It was typical for the dinner guests to recline on their left elbows with their feet extended away from the table. Jesus had taken his place at the table when she arrived. Verse 37 says, and behold, a woman. We should envision the wide-eyed response of those attending as her presence is noticed around the room. Phones are immediately unholstered. <laughs> Look who it is. Whether she liked it or not, everyone knew her. She was a notorious sinner from the city. If she had remained unnoticed by some, her presence became fully known when she stood sobbing out loud behind Jesus, her tears literally raining down onto his extended feet. If her entrance was surprising, what she does next is astounding. She kneels down, undoes her hair, dries his feet with her hair, and anoints his feet with costly perfume, all the while constantly kissing his feet. Young people, this picture is one of the great be real moments in the Bible. You can explain to your parents later what I'm talking about. We have here one of the most beautiful examples of true worship in all of scripture. Notice first her resolve. She had learned of Christ's presence at the meal and determined to come to him. The whole scene indicates that they must have met sometime before. Something had happened to her in his presence and she was coming to acknowledge that. She came prepared with her alabaster flask of ointment. She knew what she wanted to do and with great courage exposed herself uh, to her fellow citizens who would almost certainly misinterpret her actions. How difficult this must have been for her. But Jesus was worth it to her. How much is Jesus worth to us? Are we willing to risk what others think of us to come worship Jesus? 
Sometimes even our own consciences can prevent us from coming. I remember speaking to someone who told me, Colin, if you only knew the things I have done, you would know I can never come to Christ. But the hymn we will sing after the sermon reminds us that Christ can receive us with all our brokenness. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Notice next her humility. She unbinds her hair, not caring what that will look like. And then she kneels down behind her savior. The breaking of the alabaster flask and pouring out the ointment is a picture of what she is doing. She exposes her heart in front of everyone, sacrificing her own self-worth and pouring it out at Jesus' feet. She recognized the full truth of what we sang earlier, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing. Yet the prospect of humbling herself in the presence of her Savior is what seems to embolden her. In Christ's presence, everything around her fades into relative insignificance. What she thinks of herself, what others think of her, all of this pales in comparison to seeing herself in relation to Jesus. She is the sinner. He is the Savior. His reputation is all that matters. And she offers herself in thankful devotion. My friends, this is the essence of the Christian life. It is the heart of worship. We can't control how anyone thinks of us. But like this unnamed sinful woman, we can approach our Savior with these words. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. The ice had broken. If the woman is a picture of humility and devotion, then the Pharisee is a picture of pride and exclusion. She moves toward Jesus in his heart and mind. The Pharisee moves away. It's hard to say exactly why this Pharisee invited Jesus over for a meal. Was he curious about recent claims that Jesus was a prophet? If we glance earlier in chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, we see the account of Jesus raising the widow of Nain's son from the dead and how the people had glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Since Nain is the last location Luke mentions before our passage, it's possible that this Pharisee lived in Nain. And a prophet was definitely the kind of person a Pharisee would like to have in his LinkedIn account. As a group, the Pharisees were fastidious about ritualistic purity. They developed elaborate rules to safeguard keeping the Mosaic law. 
The Pharisees had raised questions earlier in the Gospel of Luke about Jesus' habit of eating with sinners and doing certain things on the Sabbath. Now Christ's acceptance of the woman's attention is just too much for him to take. He says to himself that Jesus can't possibly be a prophet for two reasons. First, Jesus had proven he was not a prophet by not discerning who this woman was, and second, by allowing himself to become ceremonially unclean through her personal contact with him. In other words, he accuses Jesus of being both spiritually blind and unholy. Luke is presenting a great irony here. In his mind and heart, the Pharisee is pronouncing a kind of prophetic judgment about Jesus and the woman. But like the Pharisees which had come before him in Luke's gospel, he had failed to hear Jesus' own words about himself. When accused of eating with sinners, Jesus had replied, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke is proving a point he made earlier in chapter 7, verse 30, about the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him, that is, John the Baptist. John had come preparing the way for Jesus and offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Pharisees fails to see Jesus as a prophet, but also, as John Calvin puts it, as the mediator whose peculiar office it was to bring miserable sinners into a state of reconciliation with God. In other words, this Pharisee failed to see the reason Christ came, and he did not have a posture, therefore, of repentance. Commentator David Garland points out another chink in the Pharisee's armor. The Pharisee's attitude shows that he thinks the opposite of sin is virtue. But the opposite of sin is faith. Jesus says later to the woman, your faith has saved you. Romans 14.23 says, whatever is not faith is sin. The problem with trying to offset being a sinner by being virtuous is that life becomes an effort to create a report card that is pleasing to God. Garland says, the irony is that this effort stokes the attitudinal sins of self-righteousness and reproachful fault-finding in others. The reality is that we all start out with an F and work it into an F minus. Now until this point in the narrative, no words have been spoken out loud. In a move of wonderful storytelling, the first audible words occur in verse 40. The first word out of Jesus' mouth is Simon. There is much grace in that. Jesus had agreed to eat in Simon's house and will again in the Gospel of Luke and two other Pharisees houses. 
He didn't differentiate between types of sinners, but was as eager to preach to Simon as minister to the woman. Notice how Jesus is addressing Simon's thoughts. In a moment, he demonstrates to Simon that he is the true prophet, being able to identify and assess Simon's very thoughts and intentions. Jesus continues with a wonderfully simple and compelling parable. A denarius was a day's wage. So one debtor owed 50 days wages while the other owed well over a year's worth. The money lender forgives the debt of both. The concept of debt is frequently used in scripture to describe our accountability to God. Jesus shows Simon that debt is debt, whether it's a lot or a little. God told Adam and Eve that in the day they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they would surely die. It didn't matter how much fruit they ate, but whether they ate any at all. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a lack of trust in God. That's why the opposite is faith, because faith is trust in God. Sin lowers God down and raises us up. Faith lowers us down and puts God back in his rightful place. Simon was prone to compare himself with the woman and think that while she was hopeless, his virtue could cover a little bit of sin. Jesus shows Simon and us that without forgiveness, there is no salvation. Notice the parable says, and when they could not pay, neither could pay. All sinners are on a level playing field before God. That's one reason the gospel is so wonderful. Christ's blood is sufficient to cover any amount of sin. Whether much like this woman or or less, it doesn't matter. Christ's blood is sufficient. Jesus then asked Simon, which of them will love him more? Simon's answer is somewhat reluctant. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus says to him, do you see this woman? Simon thought that he had seen her. He thought he knew what she was all about. But Jesus reveals the real truth of the matter. He goes on to show how the woman had loved and welcomed him, but Simon had not. Hospitality was very important in the ancient world. Often it was used as a way of attaining and preserving honor. Guests were honored and protected by the host, and they never left with the same status in which they entered. If the visit was a success, the guest would leave as a friend who would then praise the host. Simon provided none of the usual courtesies or respects. Jesus got kind of a cold shoulder, we might say. The ice grew thicker. 
No water to wash his tired, dirty feet. No kiss of welcome. No olive oil to soothe his dry skin, scorched by the sun. In every case, the woman not only provided, but exceeded what would have been expected. She washes his feet with her own tears and hair. She never stops kissing Jesus. She anoints his feet with a costly perfume. And then comes the wonderful punchline. Verse 47, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he is forgiven little, little loves little. It's important for us to realize what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that the reason she was forgiven was because she loved much. What he is saying is that her love was evidence of her forgiveness. The woman loved much because she had been forgiven much. There are wondrous spiritual truths here. The first is that there is no worship without forgiveness. The second is a kind of spiritual axiom. We will love the Lord in proportion to how much we realize we are forgiven by him. Sometimes people ask me why we have a public confession of sin in our worship services. Now, there are many reasons, but a primary one is so that we can worship the Lord more fully. The last verse of the hymn, the second hymn that we sang says, but drops of grief shall ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. We really don't begin to worship until we realize how much we've been forgiven in Christ. Christ then pronounces her sins are forgiven. But the people exclaim, who is this who even forgives sins? Luke's gospel has repeatedly asked this question. Have we known Jesus as the only one who forgives our sins? That's one of the most important questions any of us can ever ask. Jesus then says to the woman these marvelous words, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Salvation is all of grace through faith and faith is the gift of God. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is the prayer of faith. Jesus then sends her out in peace. That peace is shalom. It is the assurance of salvation. It is the promise that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Finally, this story highlights several truths which speak to us of the significance of the Lord's table. First, this story teaches us that the church is a community of forgiveness. 
Jesus declares that the woman is forgiven in a very public setting. If you remember when you took your membership vows, the first question from our book of church church order asks, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? This is the vow we all take before we are admitted to the Lord's table. The church is the community of the forgiven. We are saved into the body of Christ. Next, the table is a place where we behold the Lord and receive his benefits by faith. Paul warns that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ eats and drinks judgment on himself. Simon thought he was seeing Jesus truly, but he totally missed who he is. The woman had the eyes of faith to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Lastly, the table is a place of assurance and blessing. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. By the Holy Spirit, we feed upon Christ and our faith is strengthened. The Lord sends the woman away with a blessing. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. At the Lord's table, we receive this assurance. Christ has died for you. Go in peace. One of the amazing things about this story is how the woman could come to know her sins were forgiven by Jesus without having seen him die on the cross. She came to faith not seeing all that we know through the scriptures. She had been an uninvited and unwelcome guest in the house of Simon. But she had also seen how Christ had not been welcomed there It points us to a profound truth of the gospel. John 1, verses 11 to 12 says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The eternal Son of God clothed himself in flesh coming to the world as an unwelcome guest so that he could save his children and bring them to heaven to feast at his table forever. The woman came in, a stranger, to Simon's house, but left as a daughter of the king. Isaac Watts captured what happened to this woman and what happens to all who come to Christ by faith in his paraphrase of Psalm 23 when he wrote, the sure provisions of my God attend me all my days. Oh, may his house be my abode and all my work be praise. There I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger or a guest, but like a child, at home. That's what this table says to you. You are a child at home. 
What a great Savior we have. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as we come now to your table and experience this visible word, would you pour out your spirit upon us that we might know something more of the depth and the height and the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.